are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Amen. As we, uh, you may be seated, as we turn to prayer and uh, prepare our hearts to hear God's word spoken and preached, the gospel proclaimed here, I want to just remind you guys uh, something to celebrate together. This is the anniversary, I think it may be the eighth anniversary of Iglesia de Fe. It's our Spanish, yeah, right? For anyone who's not aware, uh, in the afternoon, there's a Spanish-speaking uh, service that takes place here, and it's been a great partnership for many, many years, and we just celebrate with Iglesia de Fe how God is growing that body and is uh, proclaiming the gospel and touching lives in heart languages that are not ours, not, not English, uh, and so we're just grateful for that. So would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, God, as we prepare now to, um, to enter this holy event of hearing your word preached, proclaimed the gospel and the good news of your Son, proclaimed to us week to week, God, I pray that you would calm our hearts, prepare us, rid us of distractions of the week, the distractions that are in our pockets, <laughs> and just prepare us to hear your gospel and respond. God, as we open your word, I pray that you would remind us that we are a called people, called from every tribe, tongue, nation, that we are called not by our merit, not that we are here standing on our earned favor, but it's just your grace on us. And as you remind us of that, Lord, that we can celebrate your your grace and your gospel pouring out in power on Iglesia de Fe and on partners in the gospel and churches throughout the entire globe in every tribe, tongue, and nation. As we, I pray that that would be in our minds as we, we study the early church today in Acts. That our bond here surpasses all culture, language, um, all other bonds pale in comparison to the bond we have in Christ because of that call. So living into that call, God, rid us of the passions that are not your passions, the pursuit of kingdoms that are not your kingdom, and glory, God, that is not your glory. Make us passionate only for your glory. Help us today to see that glory so brightly that everything else fades. The glory of the Son, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, kids, I want you to stay with us uh, as we read Scripture together. And when we're done reading Scripture, a video will cue, and that's going to be your cue uh, for kids ages. Help me out. Kids in what grades? Preschool to fourth. Preschool to fourth uh, can meet your teachers in the back, and you'll go downstairs for a special time together while um, we finish out up here. So I'm going to be reading today from the book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 8 to 15, 
And if you would stand for the reading of Scripture, if you're able. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, quick recap. We are in the New Testament book of Acts. This is Luke's theological history of the church. He's writing to a first century follower of Jesus, trying to help him understand where he has come from and what his faith is based on and how he fits in the story. And that's what we're seeing as well as we go through this book. Jesus died for our sins. He rose from the grave. He ascended to the Father. And in his place, he has poured out his Holy Spirit on his people to empower his followers to be witnesses to him in their lives and to help them live out the new life that he offers to those who trust in him. And in this current major section of Acts that we're in, chapters 3 through 8, Luke has been going back and forth between these movements of opposition to the Jesus movement from outside that community and tension and conflict and potential for division inside the church. And as the church expands, as more and more people come to know Jesus, those circles are getting larger as the body of Christ is getting bigger. And God is moving in powerful ways. And one of the people that's been a part of that, who we were introduced to last week, is Stephen. And this week in the passage that we're looking at, we're going to learn more about him and see how his life is an example of God making an impact through him as he makes a difference in him. Uh, I spent more time growing up uh, with my older brother Brad than with anyone. Uh, And even though Brad was almost six years older than me, uh, he invited me to hang out with him and his friends. Uh, He introduced me to the movies that he liked. He played games with me. He taught me how to spiral a football and how to shoot free, uh, free throws. And Uh, Because he rooted for the Texas Longhorns, I rooted for the Texas Longhorns, and this is a good weekend to be a Texas Longhorn fan. Amen. We liked the same teams, we played the same sports, we laughed at the same jokes and the same humor, and so I ended up uh, acting and even sounding a lot like my brother. So, of course, we had to take advantage of that to prank our mom based on that similarity, Uh, We would call her pretending to be one or the other and see how long it would take her to figure out which son was actually talking to her. Oh, Jeff, I can't believe that was you. 
And, uh, and then sometimes we would actually get on the same phone together and hand the phone back and forth to each other <laughs> to see how long it would take her. That was the best. I am the person that I am today, for good, bad, or indifferent, because of that time that I spent with my brother. And it makes me think of a statement that some of you may be familiar with from a somewhat well-known author, motivational speaker, uh, Jim Rohn. You are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. You are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. And research actually backs that up. We are heavily influenced, primarily influenced by relationships that we invest in, whether that's friends or families or coworkers or media that we consume. Uh, it shapes our self-image, our identity, our character, our decisions, even our looks. Now, you know there's that kind of joke statement about how older couples start to look like each other? That, that's actually true. I mean, people have done studies that show that there's something to that because they have spent time together and they pick up each other's mannerisms, likely. Well, when we read this story of Stephen in Acts chapter 6, you can't help but be struck by how much he comes to look and sound like Jesus and how his life even parallels the life of Jesus. We briefly met Stephen this week, and this week we're going to really get more of an understanding of who he is, and then we're going to keep up with his story for the next couple of weeks in the following chapter and a half in the book of Acts. But as we look at Stephen today, here's what I hope we notice, that we all tend to look like the people that we spend time with, the people that we focus on, the people that we follow. And faithful followers look like Jesus. Faithful followers look like Jesus. Well, let's get into the passage and understand what I mean by that. Uh, if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, whether that's on your phone or I think it's page 36 in your Acts sermon journals or uh, page 1086 if you're using one of these black Bibles in front of you. Um, I, I couldn't remember the page numbers last hour, and I confess that uh, I didn't remember the sermon journal page number because Joey tends to preach out of the sermon journals, and I preach out of the Bible, and I got a laugh first hour. I, I didn't know why it got a laugh, but I, I said, it doesn't make any difference. It's the same text. It's not like, you know, this has more or something. Acts chapter 6. How, do, how does Stephen start to look like Jesus? Verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Remarkable words. Stephen, full of grace and power, is doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, there's something significant here that, that I, I think Luke intends to catch our attention. Because up to this point, we've seen people in the book of Acts doing signs and wonders, but it's all been the apostles, those uh, 12 eyewitnesses to Jesus, people who had been with him through all his ministry and could testify to uh, the, the story of who he was and what he had done. And they have been commissioned to be authentic, uh, authorized, I can say it, authorized witnesses 
to Jesus' power and his resurrection. And, and the miracles that God works through them authenticate, prove the message that they're proclaiming. We, we saw that in chapter 2 and in chapter 5, all these signs and wonders and, and healings that are done. But now suddenly for the first time in verse 8, someone other than an apostle is performing miracles. God is doing amazing things through this other person. I mean, it would make sense, right, that, that the 12 are going to be the focus of God pouring out miraculous work onto people. But they're not the only people through whom God is working in that way. Stephen is another person who is not an apostle, whom God is doing amazing, unexpected things through. And, of course, I, we probably all want to know, what are these great wonders and signs? And I have no idea. It, Luke doesn't tell us. But I think one of the things we can say is that they're not just for entertainment. They're not just to draw a crowd. They're not just to sort of amaze or impress people. Almost certainly, we're, I think, meant to assume they're the same kinds of signs and wonders that Jesus was performing. Sicknesses being healed, poverty being relieved, demonic possession being loosed. It's the breaking in of God's kingdom. And God, through his people, by the power of his spirit, making us and making this world look like what it was supposed to look like. God is doing remarkable things through Stephen because faithful followers make an impact. That's the first thing that I think Luke wants us to see here is that faithful followers of Jesus make an impact. And we say that because Jesus himself, of course, throughout his whole life and ministry, performed all these miraculous works. And, I mean, if you're like me, when you read through the Gospels, sometimes you're tempted to go like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, duh, he's Jesus. Like, he has the cheat code. He can do anything. He's God, right? And, of course, we're not Jesus. We're not God. But we say Jesus do the, can do those things, not us. But, but then that expands out to his apostles, who are also doing great, miraculous, amazing things, who, who were, again, maybe tempted to say, well, yeah, but that's because they were the 12 special ones who were the authoritative witnesses to Jesus, and they're going to be the ones that the Spirit is going to inspire to write most of the New Testament. And, and of course, they have to be able to have these signs and wonders to authenticate their message. Well, if that's true, how do we explain verse 8? Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen's not Jesus. Stephen's not one of the apostles. You know what Stephen was? Stephen was an administrator. Stephen was a manager. Stephen was in charge of the ministry of organizing and distributing the charitable relief for the poor people in the congregation. He never wrote a book of the Bible, and based on you know, what he was doing in terms of ministry, there wasn't some need for miraculous confirmation of God's power through him. I think it suggests to us that God is still in the business of doing miraculous things, that God cares about and reveals himself through unexpected impact through his people. Now, I'm, I am not saying that we should expect to see miracles all the time. I mean, if you look across the Bible, there, there's only a few punctuated periods of 
miraculous events across thousands of years of Bible history, right? But God does amazing, inexplicable, miraculous things. I, I don't think we should go to the other extreme and say we should never see them or we should automatically be suspicious of them. God does miraculous, amazing things through his people to make an impact. And, and we can't explain why he does it with some people and not with others and why in some places and not in others. And, and sometimes God uses human agency in, in doing inexplicable, amazing things. And sometimes he does it all by himself. And sometimes he works through a combination of those things. But God is still doing amazing things through his people. And that's the point of this ministry of Stephen. Now, in verse 9, we go on to read that some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, of the Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Uh, now, just a side note, these were, because of the names, also, like Stephen, Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews. So these are people from his own kind of cultural and linguistic background who are now going to argue and debate with him. But in verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is able to more than just hold his ground He's, in fact, winning these arguments, not winning like in some, boy, I'm going to prove you wrong, but, but he's like, he's clear. His points are irrefutable. He's pointing people to Jesus and explaining how he is the promised Messiah that, that has come to die and rise from the dead and deserves our worship and, and love and trust. And Stephen is able to convince these men somehow, or at least not, at least argue in a way that they can't refute what he's saying. And the thing is, there's no indication in the text that he was smarter or better educated or had special training to be able to do this. The reason he was able to do this was because, in verse 10, of the Holy Spirit who was with him while he was speaking. It's a fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made that when his disciples would be handed over to synagogues to not worry about what they would say, but the Spirit would inspire them and give them wisdom. I don't know about you, but when I read this account of Stephen and the power and the clarity and, and how compellingly he was able to talk about Jesus, there's something in me that goes, man, I, I wish I had that. I would love to be able to have the Spirit's supernatural power to help me communicate clearly and engagingly the good news of Jesus. Do you want to know how this happened in his life? He stepped out and just did it. Stephen made himself available. In fact, he wasn't even looking for this kind of ministry, right? He's just over here Somehow God is doing miraculous things through him, and all of a sudden he gets hauled in front of these people who are wanting to challenge him about what he's saying about Jesus. Stephen did this because he simply stepped out in faith and made himself available. And, and I think the 
point here is that if we want to see more of the Holy Spirit's power and presence in our lives, to see God making an impact through us, just get out there and invest yourself. Take a step and do something for Christ. Just step out. One of the things that I love about Faith Church is how invested we are in God's global mission. That over years and years that Faith Church has sent out a lot of people, not just as vocational ministers, but young people and and not so young people on what we call serve and learn trips. And if you've ever been on one of those, or if you've been to a luncheon or report meeting where you've heard the stories from people who've been on those trips, it's exciting because you always come away hearing stories of God's miraculous, unexpected work through people who simply made themselves available. I can't believe what God did through me. I never thought I was going to be able to do that. I can't believe that person was interested in hearing about Jesus. I never would have expected that she was going to respond positively in the way that she did. All these stories of people who have seen the Holy Spirit working through them in miraculous, unexpected ways and making an impact through them because they were willing to step out. It's not because the Holy Spirit is more present in Spain or Lebanon or Ukraine than he is here. It's simply because when you step out and you follow the Spirit's leading to do something for Jesus, you will find that the Spirit fills and empowers you to do what you can't do yourself. Faithful followers make an impact. That's what was happening here with Stephen. He, he's, he's giving clear, compelling answers. God gives him the words, the clarity for the ministry that he's been brought into. And God will do that for you too. But not everybody is happy with that. And not everybody is glad to see God moving and drawing people to Jesus. Look at the response in verse 11. These men from Uh, the synagogue or synagogues that may be multiple synagogues, doesn't not really clear, but they, they couldn't withstand his wisdom, so they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came on him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and against the law. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. They couldn't answer Stephen's arguments. They couldn't refute what he was saying. So what do they do? They use lies and back backroom manipulation and secret strategies, and they whip up popular opinion against Stephen. They, they stirred up, you notice in verse 12, they stir up the, the people and the elders and the scribes. And they go out of their way to, you know, sort of whip up a, a, an angry crowd and, and turn popular opinion against the followers of Jesus. Now, we've seen previously in Acts, remember, these summary statements about the, the good reputation that the followers of Jesus had. Like, people are noticing these people are loving and compassionate and generous, 
and they have a good reputation in the community. But now, through lies and deception and misrepresentation, the people are able to stir up the crowds in Jerusalem, turn them against them. You know, popular opinion can be swayed so easily. I mean, that's the world we live in, right? Nobody has to tell us that. The same crowds that praised Jesus and and followed him when there was food and miracles turned away when he wasn't providing those anymore. Just like there was a crowd of religious leaders and, and people that they whipped up to call for Jesus' crucifixion, now Stephen is handed over to this very same council to cry out against him. I think it's maybe a reminder for us that we can't really be driven in the church by trying to get the popularity of the world around us. Now, now hear me, this does not mean like it doesn't matter how we live. We are called to be gracious, winsome, gentle, to, to give a reasoned defense for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect. But it is true that crowds are fickle. And the mission of the church, the message of the church, is not shaped by what will make us popular or what we think people want to hear. Sometimes the the people, the, the world around us will see what we're doing and hear what we're preaching and they'll say, wow, that's awesome. I want to know more about that. And sometimes they'll see and hear what we're saying and doing and saying, you are the worst people imaginable. I, I can't even believe that you believe that. And sometimes they may even stir up lies and false accusations against God's people. It's a reminder that faithful followers attract opposition. Faithful followers should even expect opposition. Jesus says, no servant is above his master. If they hated me, they will hate you. And there's this very clear paralleling that's going on in Stephen's life to the life of Jesus. False witnesses, accusations of blasphemy, lies about how he's going to tear down the temple, brought before the religious council, stirring up the... Does any of this sound familiar? If you know anything of the life of Jesus, this should be ringing bells for us. Stephen's life is clearly patterning Jesus' experience because faithful followers look like the one they're following. They bring him, in verse 12, to the council, the the ruling religious authorities, the same ones who condemned Jesus to death, and they accuse him of blaspheming against Moses and God. Was there any reason for that? Was there any basis for that accusation? No. No. This man is blaspheming this holy place in the law. He, He didn't, but again, they accuse him of it. They're trying, he's trying to change our customs. All the accusations that Jesus is faced with in front of these very same people. And if you're being accused of the things that Jesus was being accused of, it probably means you're in good company. You may be doing something right. You see how Stephen's opponents twist his teaching. Jesus is greater than Moses. It's not a diminishment of Moses, but Jesus comes and tries to get us to see that he is 
the one that Moses said, a prophet will come after me who is greater than me, and you must do everything he says. Is Jesus greater than the temple? Well, if he's God in the flesh that he claimed and proved himself to be, yes. On and on. The, the truth is that Jesus is greater than religious traditions and customs. We are called to communicate the, the truth of Jesus and who he is and what he has done with clarity and love and grace, with respect. We're, we say we want to be winsome ambassadors of Jesus Christ. But understand that you can say everything as clearly and respectfully and graciously and gently as you can, and people will still sometimes take your words and twist them and and intentionally misrepresent them. And sometimes we just have to endure false accusations for the sake of Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I get falsely accused, when people take my words, you know, in the worst light possible or misrepresent what I've said or done. I don't particularly enjoy that. I mean, anyone here really like that? No, I mean, it's frustrating, it's discouraging, it's angering. I mean, even even talking about it and remembering some of those experiences in our own lives, you can maybe feel the same sort of resentment and defensiveness coming up. Maybe there's something that's unresolved with you and someone else, and maybe you're even feeling like, yeah, that's right, and I can feel the desire welling up to, you know, jump in and defend myself and set the record straight and, and box those people who are misrepresenting me as enemies. So what is Stephen's reaction? Look at verse 15. Gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, that, that gazing is interesting. It, it communicates they're, they're staring intently, and, and you can imagine, probably with hostility, probably with anger, and can you imagine being in Stephen's situation, right? Like, surrounded by all these powerful people, the same ones who condemned Jesus, staring you down. It would be intimidating. It, it would be... It would be threatening. His face was like the face of an angel. How do you go in front of a crowd of hostile people who may very well intend to kill you and have the face of an angel? Well, first, we probably need to unpack a little of what that means or what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that he looked like one of those fat, chubby little babies with wings, right? The the cherubs, right? Like, those are not angels. Uh, That's just some goofy medieval Renaissance interpretation of angels. Angels in the Bible are scary, awesome, bright, resplendent beings, when anyone in the Bible sees an angel, they fall down as, as though dead in terror and awe. So he doesn't look like a cute, chubby little angel, and he obviously does not look like some blazing, glorious being with wheels spinning in wheels and fire shooting out, right? So what does it mean? I, I think we're probably meant to understand there, there's a serenity on his face, There's confidence, there's 
a kind of radiance probably to his face. I mean, we say that sometimes, right? Like he was beaming. How does that happen? How does someone, how do we end up in a situation faced with hostility, resentment, threats, and misrepresentation and end up having a face that looks like an angel? It's because faithful followers experience God's presence. Faithful followers experience God's presence. I mean, it's clearly the work of the Holy Spirit in Stephen. Remember, we we didn't really dig into this, but back up in verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power. And earlier in chapter 6 that we looked at last week, he's described as full of the Spirit and full of wisdom and full of faith. The Spirit's work, the presence of God's Holy Spirit in Stephen's life is evidenced not only by the signs and wonders that he's performing, but by what he actually looks like and the character and the wisdom and the self-control and the godliness that he displays in response to all this. Stephen's grace and faith and wisdom and power are a reflection of Jesus, right? But this is what Jesus is like in the face of hostility and opposition. I think there's another parallel here that we're meant to think of in relation to Jesus. When Jesus goes up on that mountain and he takes Peter and James and John with him and he is transfigured and his face shines like the sun. Jesus' face radiated the glory of the Father to Peter and James and John. And and now when... Jesus' enemies are looking at Stephen. I think they're seeing some of that glory reflected in his face. You know, it's interesting, this description, face like the face of an angel. It's the only time anyone in the Bible is described this way. So I'm just kind of up here. I can make it mean whatever I want, right? Like we're all just spitballing this whole thing. No, I, no, I, I think we're supposed to reflect on, I think maybe most significantly, who and what are angels. Angels are spiritual beings who live in the unveiled presence of God. They see his glory, his power, his goodness, his beauty, his holiness. Can you imagine what living in a constant awareness of God's presence and glory and power and beauty would do to your soul? to your perspective on things, to what's going on in your life. I mean, you have to think it it would bring just a, a deep peace and a profound joy and an unshakable confidence. I mean, I imagine that these guys are probably even angrier at Stephen because he's not threatened or intimidated by them. What's wrong with you? Don't you know that we have the power to kill you or release you? Why aren't you worried? Worried? I mean, is a battleship scared of somebody firing BBs at them? That's what this is like. What can you do to me? Stephen is essentially saying, I am a child of the living God, and he is with me. No doubt the council is staring at him with angry, hostile looks, Stephen's not cowering in insecurity. He's not angry. 
He, he, I mean, that would be normal, right? I could understand that. Hostile looks generate anger and resentment in return. They didn't see fear. They saw a face like an angel. Looking back with love and peace and joy and confidence. There's been one time in my life that I think I experienced something somewhat like what Stephen is probably experiencing here. My wife Amelia and I, not long after we were married, were on a spiritual retreat weekend. And uh, unbeknownst to us, part of the experience of that weekend is that people who had previously been on the weekend were writing notes and prayers and sending messages to us that we received throughout the course of that weekend. So over the course of a couple of days, we were literally, in, in a positive way, bombarded with prayers and messages of, I love you, and I'm so thankful for you, and I'm praying for you on this weekend, and I know God is going to do amazing things in your life, and, and I'm so glad that you're my brother in Christ. I had what I can only experience, express as a spiritual high. In response to that, I was just, I can still recall that feeling of being so overwhelmed by the love and the beauty and the goodness and the power of Jesus that I saw everyone around me in different eyes. It was like I had to do every, it took everything in me not to just like jump up and down and start shouting with joy and saying, do you people understand? Do you know how good God is and how much he loves you? I even remember thinking about um, my daily commute that was coming up on Monday because we lived in New York and it was crowded and, you know, driving around was always stressful. And, and I literally remember feeling like, man, I can't wait for my Monday commute to come now because what do I care? It, it's, I don't, I don't I, I want it. Bring it on. There's nothing that can touch me out of this awareness of God's presence and love and joy. I wasn't bothered by things that would normally get to me. It was just awesome. And listen, I shared that story because the point is not like we're supposed to have some experience like that or, you know, if you haven't had an experience like that, you know, you've done something wrong or you're missing out or, or the goal is, I'm not saying like the goal is to make sure you have something like that. The point is God maybe at some level, some version of that for each of us has probably given us an experience where we've just been so grabbed by his goodness and beauty and love and joy and power and presence with us. Those moments don't last. They're not meant to last. They'll last in heaven we don't live on the mountaintop. Just like, remember what the disciples say, let's build tabernacles and stay here. And Jesus says, no, no, we're going back down into the valley. And you remember right after they go back down in the valley, it's back to brokenness and chaos and, and neediness. And God gives us those moments. God gives us those, that awareness and the reminder of his presence with us for all those times that we're not up on the mountain, which is 90% of where we live in the valley of everyday life of brokenness and craziness and chaos and disappointment and frustration and hostility and misrepresentation and false accusations. 
God wants us to know who he is for us and his presence with us, whether we have some emotional experience of it or not. Because we're going to be in those circumstances like Stephen was in, in, in some form or another. And oh, he wants us to know that he is with us. Whether we feel it as some emotional mountaintop or not, this is what it means that, that we can have the same assurance of God's presence that Stephen had here. I have to remind myself continually of what I know of Jesus and what I have experienced of him in those moments where I'm not feeling it and I'm not experiencing it. Faithful followers of Jesus make an impact in a way that will attract opposition, but in the middle of it, we know God's presence so that nothing can threaten or undermine or destroy or ruin us. I spent a lot of time with my brother growing up, and I grew to be like him in all kinds of ways. Faithful followers look like Jesus. And if I'm the average of the five people that I spend the most time with, I want to make sure that Jesus is at the top of that list. Because when I see this story of what that looked like for Stephen, it's meant to be an encouragement and an invitation for us to know the presence and the power of Jesus in all the mess and brokenness that we live in so that he can make an impact through us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness that you work in and through regular people like Stephen and like us. Because we believe that you haven't stopped working through ordinary followers of Jesus. And it's not about how faithfully we're following and we have to be better followers, but we just need to follow you. We want to follow you, Jesus. We trust you. We love you. We ask that whatever we have, Father, wherever we are, wherever you will take us, whether it's obvious goodness or trouble and difficulty that comes from being your follower or just living in a broken world, oh, Jesus, we need, we want to be close to you. To know your presence in the middle of all the mess, to make an impact for you and for your gospel. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.